can talk. He 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 can talk. I can sing. Hey there, and welcome back to This Is Comp, a subseries of Discord and Rhyme where we talk about compilations, box sets, and accordion polka medleys, apparently, artist by artist, song by song. You can get early access to these episodes by signing up for a monthly donation at patreon.com slash discordpod, and thank you so much to everyone who already has. I'm Rich Bennell. I'm John McFerrin. And we have a special returning guest. It's good to be back, everyone. I'm Libby Cudmore. Thanks for having me again. Miss Cudmore, if you're nasty. (laughs) <laughs> so for those who haven't heard Libby on the podcast before, she's joined us about, I think, seven or eight times already. Wow, that's it's, the yeah. appearances are really piling up. Libby yeah. spins records every Saturday on Twitter at hashtag Record Saturday. And she's also the host of the podcast, The OST Party, about movie soundtracks and the brand new podcast, Misbehaven, about HBO's The Righteous Gemstones which I have been listening to because, uh, I mean, I, 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 I like the Righteous Gemstones and you guys are uh, you guys do a great job breaking it down. Oh, thank you. We're having a lot of fun with it. I can't believe we're almost through uh, season one already. And John, this is your first time talking with Libby on the show as well. Yes, unless you count the time that our alter egos got in a fight at the start of the Steely Dan episode. That's yeah, true. There yes. was that. <laughs> in the Discord and Rhyme expanded universe. Exactly. So let's get started with the songs. Today we are going to be talking about the songs in the second half of Weird Al Yankovic's 1986 polka medley, Polka Party. So we warned you in the last episode that some 1980s Rolling Stones was just around the corner, and (sighs) I regret to inform you that that time has come. (laughs) This is Harlem Shuffle. Okay. (laughs) Couldn't Weird Al just have kept covering the song? Yeah. Listeners can't see this, but John is doing the Harlem Shuffle. Of sorts. Can you do the Harlem Shake, John? Oh, gosh. I don't think I can. 2013 was a long time ago. (laughs) Harlem Shuffle was originally written and recorded in 1963 by an otherwise obscure R&B duo called Bob and Earl, consisting of Bobby Ralph and Earl Nelson. The original single peaked at 44 on the Billboard Hot 100 and at 36 on Cashbox. But a UK reissue in 1969 peaked at number 9. Despite a chart history that isn't especially noteworthy, the song has maintained a cult following to the present day. In 2003, the original made a top 50 list from the Daily Telegraph, 
of the best duets ever. And in 2017, it appeared in the film Baby Driver, directed by future Sparks documentarian Edgar Wright. Yeah, that's a great sequence. It's, it plays during the title sequence. Yeah, that tracks as far as uh, what we know about Edgar Wright and his musical tastes, <laughs> which I love. I actually, I'd never heard that version and I really dig it. Unfortunately, we are not discussing this song in the context of the Polka Party medley because of the original Bob and Earl version. We are discussing this song because in 1986, the Rolling Stones released a cover version. And oh boy. Yeah. Harlem Shuffle was the lead single for Dirty Work, which is a very strong contender for the worst album the band ever did. Unless you ask Robert Christgau, who gave it an A, because sure, why not? Especially when you could be listening to Steely Dan doing a song called Dirty Work. Why would you even listen to this? I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Go, yeah. Everything about Dirty Work was about as dysfunctional as the band ever got. The relationship between Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had reached an especially bad place. Partially because of disagreements in general musical approach, with Jagger wanting to skew more contemporary and Richards wanting to return to basics. And partially because Jagger was putting increasing emphasis on trying to establish himself as a viable solo act apart from the band. It also didn't help that by this point, Charlie Watts had developed a severe addiction to alcohol and heroin. To the point that many of the drums on this album are not actually performed by him. Extending this point... A very large portion of this album involved the instrumentalists, whoever they may be, laying down their parts together and Jagger stopping by later, whenever he felt like it, to overdub his vocals. After the album came out, the band more or less broke up, and while their hiatus only resulted in about a three-year gap between this album and its successor, Steel Wheels of 1989, The act of spending time apart and letting Jagger and Richards each make solo albums without thinking about the other provided a badly needed hard reset for the group that has allowed them, amazingly, to remain a viable recording and touring unit to the present day. So what can I say about Harlem Shuffle as interpreted by the Rolling Stones? Well, it's certainly a track that exists. (laughs) That track. It was, yeah. It was definitely more successful commercially than the original, peaking at 13 in the UK and 5 in the US. It's one of the few instances on the album where Jagger and Richards actually both genuinely liked the material they were working on. So that's nice. If the band had done this 10 years earlier during the Black and Blue sessions and turned it into a reggae song, or even if they had done it straight like they more or less do here, I might be really into it. As is, while I have a difficult time making a strong case that it's bad, I absolutely cannot convince myself that it's good or anywhere above the bottom tier of notable covers that the Stones have done. As happens with every song on Dirty Work, every time I listen to it, I inevitably think of the god-awful color scheme of the album cover, which looks like the 80s drunkenly ate and vomited up an inkjet color printer cartridge. Yeah, I used to have that album cover on my wall back in my, like, ironic vinyl on my wall days, but I no longer own it. Ooh, rich. Yeah, I know. The one good thing about that album cover 
is that the way that they're positioned, um, it looks like Keith Richards is mean uh, Mick Jagger in the crotch, which is very funny <laughs> to me. Anyway, this song was dutifully played routinely during the band's 1989 and 1990 tours, then shelled for almost 30 years. And while I suppose it's cute that they revived it in 2019, it's a total afterthought in their catalog. Yeah, I listened to Dirty Work a couple days ago, and when when I mentioned this on our internal Slack channel, both John, both you and Ben Marlin started debating the album's merits and which songs yes. were like the good songs on it. And all that I could think was, cool, I am yeah. never going to listen to this album again in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, you're better off. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting like that, that this seemed to be like a point in the 20-year nostalgia cycle where a lot of bands were like, doing big hit covers of 60s songs like you got um what you keep me hanging on by kim wilde the hazy shade of winter by the bangles and uh, th this is all over weird al's next album even worse like because he, he parodies george harrison's cover of james ray's got my mind set on you as this song is just six words long this song is just six words long and for some reason, there are two Tommy James and the Shondells covers. Tiffany's version of I Think We're Alone Now called I Think I'm a Clone Now. I think I'm a clone now. There's always two of me just hanging around. And Billy oh Idol's gosh. version of Moni Moni turned into Alimony. Here she come now, wants her alimony. And as you can tell, none of these parodies are good. No. Uh, Libby, what do you think of Harlem Shuffle? You love it, right? No, I don't love or or hate this song. It's sort of I'm kind of fascinated by it because I'm fascinated by the video. Oh, yeah. I watched the video earlier today, actually. Now, the video was directed by Ralph Bakshi uh, and directed by John Kay of Ren and Stimpy. Or like that. Well, the animation in it was the it was by the notoriously good person, John Kay. Yes, I'm. Um, uh, Jim Smith, who worked on Tiny Toon Adventures, was one of the animators. And Vicki Jensen, who um, went on to work on Shrek, also was one of the animators. For starters, like it really looks like Ralph Bakshi. And, and yeah. given when it is and the sort of subject matter of it, that this, you know, real buxom lady comes to life and then goes into a club with Mick Jagger and turns real... That's the plot of Cool World. <laughs> oh, gosh. Cool World, which you talked about on the OST party. And this was, what, four years before? I guess, um, yeah, so uh, Something six like years. That. Like, uh, six, six years, years, years before yeah, 1992. Cool World. And, but he had already done the whole of Cool World in this video, which mm -hmm. I find really, really, really fascinating. And I almost kind of wish this song had been on the Cool World soundtrack, although it wouldn't have fit. But, but do you yeah. but do you think that Mick Jagger knows that doodles don't have sex with noids or do you think he just doesn't care? I don't think he cares. I think Mick Jagger would have sex with a cartoon. Why not? I think so as well. The other thing about this video was that there was something about that the super glossy 80s production of it and the song that made it look like it looked like if the video for Billy Joel's Keep in the Faith was directed by a porno director. <laughs> it's got the, the same like over glossy feel to it and the really bright colors and this almost fake nostalgia all over it and keeping the faith is the one where he's in the courtroom and christy brinkley shows up at the end in the cadillac right i yeah and it's I he's it like oh no video. the man's gonna keep us from rock and roll it's just like shut up shut up you cornball 
But that's mm-hmm. what this video reminded me of. Yeah, re- regarding Mick Jagger in the video, whenever I see like Mick Jagger in just like 80s Rolling Stones videos, he, he strikes me as like the music video era began and he thought like, oh man, I'm an int- I'm a visual charismatic performer. Yep. I got this. And yes. he really didn't. Like, no. He doesn't know how to lip sync. He flails all over the place. He like shoves his lips right into the camera. It's I don't know. I, he's great on stage, but not really in video form. Like even in the video for um, Dancing in the Streets comes on yeah. and I'm like, oh, I love this song because I watch the 80s uh, Pluto video channel all the time. I just like, nope, I got to walk away. I can't look. I can hear it, but I cannot look at it. Can't look at his weird flailing. It's too weird. And like the video for um, anybody seen my baby, which played a lot on VH1 when I was a kid, like also lives rent free in my head. Mm-hmm. And Love is Strong from the Voodoo Lounge, Lounge album. They played that one a lot. The one yeah. where they're all giants. Yeah. And it's weird because like you're watching this video in the probably, I guess, the 70s. My uncle David drew a bunch of cartoons on my grandmother's garage wall called the Rotting Stumps. And it was like a parody Rolling Stones band. And it looked like the animation in this video. I'm like, you should sue. I texted him. I was like, <laughs> I was like, were you a Ralph Bakshi fan? Cause like, it looks a lot like that in this video. And I was like, you should, I want to say like, you should sue him. He stole your whole style. I'll have to send you guys some pictures of the rotting stumps. They were hysterical. And like, every time I go to my grandmother's out in Oklahoma city, I look at it. I look at that mural. It makes me really happy. Yeah, and I guess for listeners who don't know, Ralph Bakshi did was like a, an animator director who did like Fritz the Cat, American Pop, and a bunch of just like more adult animation. The Hobbit. And The Hobbit, yeah. Mm. Uh, all sorts of stuff, really. Yeah. Complete Looney Tunes. And one last thing is that this one is funny to me as a polka version because it's a rare instance of Al kind of doing a song parody. And it's not much of a parody. He just changes shuffle to polka. But yeah. it threw me for a loop as a kid. I, I thought that the Stones actually had a song where they were talking about doing a polka. If only. That would be awesome. OK, well, let's move on to the second song. This is another much better cover of a 60s song. This is Venus by Bananarama. She's got it. dropped in May 1986 as the second single from Bananarama's third album, True Confessions. And I'm not just being flippant there. That is the correct pronunciation, by the way. They're British. They say Bananarama, not Bananarama. (laughs) 
So the song topped the U.S. Hot 100, but only hit number eight in the band's native U.K., though they were overall more successful on the British charts over the span of their career, with eight of their singles hitting the top five. Though strangely enough, they never hit number one there, though they did sing on the chart-topping Band-Aid charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas. Bananarama formed in London in 1980 as a trio of Sarah Dallin, Siobhan Fahey, and Karen Woodward, and I'd like to thank the TV show Succession for teaching all of us Americans how to say Siobhan. So Dallin and Woodward were childhood friends, and Dallin met Fahey at the London College of Fashion. All three of them were active in the London punk and new wave scene, which is how they met Paul Cook, the drummer for the Sex Pistols. Cook produced their first single, a cover of the 1975 song Aie à Monois by the French-Belgian group Black Blood with lyrics in Swahili. The single caught the ear of Decca Records, who signed them and released their debut, Deep Sea Skiving, in 1983. So, Bananarama's albums tend to be a mixture of originals and covers, and part of their whole image was that they were kind of fashioned as a cold, robotic, 80s version of a 60s girl group. And their vocal arrangements feature a lot of counter melodies, but generally no harmonies. They're all singing the same notes in unison, and their music videos tended to play up that gag, with the group like performing while staring kind of dead-eyed in the same direction. Along these lines, Venus is another huge hit cover of a 60s song. The original was released in 1969 by Dutch rock band The Shocking Blue. She's got it. Yeah, baby, she's got it. Well, I'm your Venus. I'm your fire at your desire. I still hear the Shocking Blue version in the wild from time to time. I believe it was used in Netflix's The Queen's Gambit, but I would say the Bananarama version over the years has eclipsed it in popularity. Yeah, that's painfully 60s. So the only other thing to note about this song for me is that this was Bananarama's first collaboration with producers Mike Stock, Matt Aiken, and Pete Waterman, collectively known as Stock, Aiken, Waterman. And these three did a lot to define like kind of the loud, beat-heavy sound of UK pop music in the late 80s. Among their best-known songs are You Spin Me Around, open parentheses, like a record, close parentheses, by Dead or Alive. Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you. And I Should Be So Lucky by Kylie Minogue. All right. And their formula became so recognizable to the British public that the novelty group Morris Minor and the Majors spoofed it on the song This Is The Chorus. for this is delightful too that it has parodies of rick astley and actually the video for venus i realized i think in these listens to venus that um the it in another world it could be every day is like halloween by ministry like it has that same
Well, I bet that that was like hugely influenced itself by Stock Aitken Waterman, which is funny to think about. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, I'm, I don't love this song and that's not Bananarama's fault. I think I just heard it in a Venus Razor commercial at a deeply influential age. And that's all I can think about when I hear it. That that's and that's on me. Uh, but this song actually was uh, also we've talked about this on the OST party. It's in Rami Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh, yeah, it is. Great movie. Yeah, kind of covering. <laughs> but um, this is one of those that I'm slowly like warming up to a little bit more. I, and I think, like I said, it's, it was that stupid Razor commercial in the late 90s. Well, I have to say that in the Bananarama power rankings, it's way below Cruel Summer for me. Oh, way, way, way. It doesn't even rank because Cruel Summer is just an absolutely amazing track. spend more time with uh with bananarama i always uh i am sort of like more on the go-go side of things when it comes mm-hmm. to those 80s girl groups um but i i need to get out of my own head well I, i've always been like super fascinated by their song robert de niro's waiting to the point where we used <laughs> it as the intro to one of our episodes we did yep. basically just so we could clip the song <laughs> in fact let's it. clip it again right now okay robert de So, John, what do you think of Venus? You know, it's funny. This is one of the songs that I've known since before I cared about pop music. But the thing is, like, it, what I realized when I was prepping for this is it had never occurred to me to think about this as a song that somebody actually wrote or to wonder who actually made this. Like, it feels like a song that just spontaneously manifested um, at some point to exist on best of the 80s compilations uh, that, you know, you'd see advertised um, during primetime, like, you know, during an episode of the Cosby show or something like that. Nowadays, you know, with, with, with more experience and, and, you know, we're eighties production and eighties, you know, material just generally isn't something that I uh, immediately go, Oh, well, I guess I have to tolerate this. Even with that, like, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of in the middle ground of, of, I'm not sure if I like it or not. Um, it, it is interesting to me that like you, you'd have this song that, that feels so much like an 80s song that existed in a 60s version, but like it, it sounds naked in that original one. It, it just doesn't sound fleshed out. But then there's the question of like, is the is the way it's fleshed out in the 80s version uh, necessarily good? And I think maybe provisionally like it has I mean, it has things that I've, aspects to it that I've I've grown to really enjoy like that. Like pulsating rhythm underneath it. Like I always think of that as my reference point for that is always land of confusion, even though it's like a little different here. But it's, you know, it's for the same year. So yeah, I, I I don't 
dislike this one, but it's it's not it's never going to be one of my favorite uh, mid eighties uh, big dumb pop songs. It it and again just because like it's it's it almost doesn't feel like it has enough of a personality to exist as something to attach to a specific artist. Like it really was just invented to sell razors. Yes, exactly. Like that's what I like when I finally heard that it was a real song. I was surprised. I'm like, I thought that was just a yeah. jingle they made up for the Razor commercial. Okay, well, let's move on to the first repeat song for us in this Poker series. This is "Nasty" by Janet Jackson. Nasty, nasty boys don't mean a thing. Oh, you nasty boys, nasty, nasty boys don't ever change. Oh, you nasty boys. talked about nasty back in our ninth episode on janet jackson's amazing groundbreaking 1986 album control and i'm too scared to go back and listen to myself podcasting four years ago but luckily i still have my notes so here's a quick recap so nasty was released in april 1986 as the second single from control and it hit number three on the hot 100 because members of genesis were hogging the top two spots this week with invisible touch at number one and sledgehammer at number two (laughs) seems rude Yeah, very rude. They they don't respect Miss Jackson. So in 1986, Janet Jackson was still struggling to distinguish herself from her more famous older brothers, especially Michael. And she had released two studio albums on A&M Records, but they both consisted of light teen pop written by outside songwriters and produced under the watchful eye of her father and manager, Joe Jackson. So for Control, she teamed up with producers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who revolutionized her image by actually paying attention to her inner life. The lyrics on Control all stem from conversations Jam and Lewis had with Jackson while hanging out in Minneapolis, and nasty stems from an incident where some quote-unquote nasty boys were harassing her in a bar until they stepped in. What's more, Control was a musically revolutionary album. Its beats and rhythms paved the way for the new Jack Swing genre to the point where Michael Jackson's 1991 album Dangerous owes a clear debt to music that his sister had released several years before. And we'll actually be talking about that more in just a few weeks because Janet Jackson is going to show up again in this series with a track from her album Rhythm Nation 1814. But if you want to hear more about what I think of Nasty, I'll put a link to our episode in the show description. But for now, Libby, what do you think of it? Oh, who doesn't love this song? Oh, my God. This Hearing this song, I don't even remember when I heard it the first time, but it just it changed everything. I am I'm starting to get more into New Jack Swing. But even before I got into that, there was always nasty. I just I love the idea of commanding respect and not not just being a plaything 
for boys, uh, a boy toy, as you know, you've got Madonna putting it on one side of things. But, you know, Janet's out there saying, don't I don't like nasty food. I don't like nasty boys. Don't call me. You know, I'm going to be a private person. Just, you know, treat me with some respect. And I really I really, really love that message. I think in the, the midst of so much internalized misogyny that I uh, can and still does in a lot of ways swirl around the world of pop music for women, even as what is so-called girl power still being manipulated and twisted for the male gaze. Yeah. And speaking of the male gaze, I was actually watching all of the music videos from this set just this morning. And I watched both the Venus and nasty videos with my wife. And she pointed out like how not male gazy the wardrobe is for the stars in those videos like she said like a, I mean like Bananarama have like bare midriffs in the video in their video but that's about it otherwise they're like wearing shockingly comfortable looking clothes and so is Janet Jackson <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, John what do you think of this one I was thinking about this and you know thinking back to when we started the podcast if I had made like a bingo card of all the possible things that I would have thought would have happened from me being involved in this project I don't think me getting into Janet Jackson would have been something I would have had there, but golly, it happened. I mean, <laughs> I won. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've talked about this on, on a couple other episodes on a bonus episode and, and somewhere else. Um, but yeah, uh, I love this song. <laughs> like I, I, at this point, the, the albums I've heard are, uh, control rhythm nation and, uh, was it the velvet rope? Yeah, Velvet Rope. Oh, I yeah. love the Velvet Rope. Oh, they're all so good. No, that might um, be the best one of all of them, honestly. It might be. Actually, Pitchfork just released a list of like the best albums of the 90s. They and they did. put the Velvet Rope at number seven, which was pretty yeah. cool, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they love them some Janet. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's so assertive and it's it, it's so confident. It, it's so, again, I, I haven't heard the albums that came before this yet. I'm, I'm not really in a hurry to, but it, it's funny t- to me to imagine that, you know, there's this universe where, you know, she's just kind of existing uh, as this faint shadow uh, relative to her siblings. And all of a sudden, like she bursts out with this, like this, this sounds like in terms of confidence, this is like on the level of, I don't know, like contemporary Prince. And like, he had a long, uh, he had a long track record that, you know, to, to, to build up his confidence to that, to this point, like the fact that she was able to have, uh, you know, this much, uh, self-confidence that she knew that, you know, people were just going to, to hear this and go, yeah, this is great. This is transparently not just enjoyable, but it's, it's driving and powerful and it's going to stick, uh, longer than just the moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I love everything about this. The, the lyrics, the, the, the production is so crisp. Um, like there, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ticks in, in eighties production that I, I still haven't gotten to a point of really enjoying. This does not have any of those. And yeah, as, as one of those things where, you know, again, sometimes getting older is really great because like twenties yeah. age, you know, me in my twenties, I never ever would have gone out of my way to listen to Janet Jackson. And yet here I am. 
It's I would great. say that this sounds like 80s production to me, but it's like the good kind of 80s production. Because yes. in, in the last episode, I was just complaining about the production on Freeway of Love by Aretha Franklin is like exemplifying all of the the worst things about 80s production. But like Jam and Lewis and Janet Jackson here, like uh, they they rewrote the book here. They like I mean, they, they made like a catchy synth timpani hook on this song. Yes. Like, how do you even do that? Well, and every and every decade and every era has um, has ways that you can go about the production of, of that era and, and make it sound terrible. Um, you know, I, I mean, people say like, Oh, the sixties are cleaner. Yeah. But the sixties, you know, it could be really, really rough and you know, they, they didn't how, know how to use stereo seventies, you know, people would use strains in, in mildly inappropriate ways. And in the eighties, you know, there might be too much gloss, but like the good side of production in every era can be astonishing and timeless. And this falls into that category. I just going to say it's disappointing that sort of the second half of, of Janet's career mm. has been overshadowed really by a nasty boy. Yeah. Yes. Never thought of it just, that way, but yeah. Yeah. That Justin Timberlake just tried to take all this from her and there was such backlash because he's a dirtbag and he walked away scot-free and it's only now that we're really starting to reappreciate what she lost again, the velvet rope was one of the greatest albums of the nineties. And that asshole stole that from her. Oh, well, yeah. I, yeah, Justin Timberlake is one. I was specifically thinking of Les Moonvest from CBS who like ruined her career because she didn't personally apologize to him for the wardrobe malfunction. Yeah. But I'm just always going to have it out for Justin Timberlake. Cause he is the very definition of a nasty boy. He doesn't Absolutely. respect Britney. He doesn't respect anybody. He's got that stupid hair and he did not bring sexy back. It was already there. Like did the opposite of bringing sexy back. He sent sexy away. Um, and Don't I'm call really, it a sexy comeback. Yeah. I'm really glad that we have reclaimed Super Bowl Sunday as Janet Jackson Appreciation Day because she deserves it. And we had no right to take that from her. Here, here. Okay. Before we get to the next song, I have a question. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. The next song is Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. Oh, Rock Me Amadeus. Oh, Rock Me Amadeus. Oh, Rock Me Amadeus. I love the legitimate theater. <laughs> Thank you, Al, for that loving tribute to Falco. So first off, what's hilarious to me about Weird Al's rendition of this song is that it's functionally not polka at all. It's just Al shouting along to either a drum machine or Bermuda Schwartz impersonating a drum machine, but I'll allow it, I guess. Yeah. So Rock Me Amadeus was released in 1985 as the lead single from the album Falco 3, or I guess technically it's Falco Dry, but I'm not going to keep going on with that. So it hit number one in the U.S., the U.K., and a lot of Europe. And in the States, it holds the distinction of being the only German language single to top the charts. No one knows these Luftballons by Nana just barely missed the mark at number two. Sorry, Nana. 
We talked about that in our last one. Yeah, Libby, I was just thinking that you're here for both of our German language songs in the uh, in the polka series. So Falco was born Johann Hutzel in Vienna, Austria, and he took his stage name from the German skier Falco Weissflog. He released his debut album Einzelhaft in 1981, featuring the single Der Kommissar, which was a big hit in Europe, but didn't break big in the U.S. until it was covered shortly thereafter by After the Fire. So in case you weren't aware, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was having a big moment in the mid-80s. Milos Forman's 1984 film Amadeus was a sensation both at the Oscars and the box office. And Falco, who himself was a classically trained child prodigy, he wanted to pay tribute to Austria's favorite son. And much like the movie, the lyrics describe Mozart as a rock and roll rebel. So the first verse translated from German reads, quote, He was a punk and lived in the big city. It was in Vienna where he did everything. He had debts because he drank, but women all loved him anyway. And everybody screamed, come and rock me, Amadeus. End quote. My mind immediately went to, like, he was a punk. Uh, She did ballet. (laughs) He was the original. Mozart was the original skater boy. Yeah. In a way. Mozart will see you later, boy. (laughs) But I'm burying the lead here, which is that Rock Me Amadeus was the basis for a classic bit on The Simpsons. Mm. In the 1996 episode A Fish Called Selma, Troy McClure, voiced by the late great Phil Hartman, stars in a musical called Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off, and he sings a parody of Rock Me Amadeus titled Dr. Zaius. Oh, help me, Dr. Zaius. Dr. Zaius, Dr. Zaius. Dr. Zaius, Dr. Zaius. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I guess saying that Troy McClure sings it is being very generous. He's more doing a (laughs) Shrek song. So, John, do you hate every ape you see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee? Oh, my God. I was (laughs) wrong. It was Earth. All along. Uh, this song sucks. <laughs> um, but but you know what? It inspired a great bit. Oh, man, I I, I can't disagree more, but I, I love that you think that. Uh, elaborate, John. I just don't like it. I mean, it, it's I. so I didn't even know that this was actually a real song initially when I saw that Simpsons bit because I was clueless. <laughs> um, it was only much later that um, I learned it was based on something real. And then I heard it. It's like, oh, that's that's terrible. Um, I don't know. It's so cheesy. I like it. I, I I get that on a certain level. It's it's big, bouncy, boiny fun. But it, it it sounds like it was written as a joke. So yeah, I, I'm not I'm not into it at all. I listened to the Falco Three album, and the whole album kind of plays like that. Like there's this like smoky lounge jazz cover of "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue" by Bob Dylan. Uh, how about you, Libby? I'm sort of in the middle because this song baffles me. And like, there's a lot of 80s music that really baffles me. Like Taco's putting on the Ritz. Like we, we're doing what now? We're okay. We're doing a 
pop song about Amadeus. We're doing a pop cover of a Tim Pan Alley tune. Okay. Okay. Hmm. The eighties were just so wild. They were so weird. We've never had anything weird like that again. And this is like proof. of just how weird they were. Um, I don't, I'm never going to like listen to this song. Like I'm never going to be like, I feel like listening to rock me Amadeus by Falco. But I won't run screaming. I sort of like laugh when it comes on. Because again, it doesn't feel like a real song. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, my sister was weirdly obsessed with the film Amadeus. Like obsessed. And, and this film. song. I know, but it's like so for, good. But for like a 15 year old girl, for it to be like yeah. her favorite movie. Well, I mean, I mean that, that, that's the thing. It's like it's like very appealing, though. Like Tom Holtz is like super just like, you know, funny and goofy <laughs> in the lead role. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. F. Murray it's, Abraham. It's it's fun. It's it's great. But it's also it's just a, a weird film when everybody else is like really into Titanic. It's like I really like the film Amadeus. My pervert music teacher apparently or so he said went to school with Tom Holtz. And he said that's his real laugh. So I'm you sure could it hear is. it up and down the hallway. Um, and he would show Amadeus um, in music class, uh, probably while he went and had sex with students. Sure. Because, you, I mean, it's like the film's like six hours or something like that. It's a ridiculously long It's a lot. <laughs> I haven't seen Amadeus probably since high school. But the last time I saw it was like, I think it was like right before COVID. I saw a, um, the, the, I saw like a live screening of it with, uh, with a live orchestra, like playing along with all of the pieces. And what, cool. what was, what was funny about that was that like, once the credits started rolling, like people started just immediately leaving. And I'm like, guys, you know that that's like a real orchestra right there playing this music, right? Like you're, you're yeah. supposed to stay in your seat right now, but eh, whatever. Maybe if there was like a post-credit sequence or something. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't really have like a complicated defense of this song. I just think it's really fun and goofy, and it's got a good beat, and the video is really fun. So it's just baffling. That's all. It's just baffling. No, and that's fair. Yeah, it is. It, it is like a baffling piece of art, and it, it is funny to me that the movie Amadeus was like genuinely a big enough hit that like a, a, a song like this themed around it. Uh, would become like this international number one hit. It is again, the eighties were a strange time. Like this would play, you would dance to this. Yes. You would like do like a key bump and then go dance to this in your weird spandex leggings and your fishnet gloves. <laughs> it is really funny to me that like, cause, cause the, 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 the story presented in the movie is completely ahistorical. Like it, it, it did not happen that way at all. And but the thing is, like it was basically like a conspiracy theory that started around the time he died, and then it turned into uh, a beloved play, but like not that like widely well known. And then like then it explodes into this to this huge motion picture sensation, and then it turns into Rock Me Amadeus. It's a fascinating chain to me that it all <laughs> just started. Started with somebody starting a, a forward, forward, forward rumor. Hey, did you know that Salieri might have killed Mozart? Yeah, that's like if somebody, if Lady Gaga recorded a song based on a Bill O'Reilly book. Exactly. <laughs> Give her another couple decades, I guess. <laughs> It'd still be a banger. Let's be real. She'd write a banger. Okay, well, let's go on to the next song. This is Shout by Tears for Fears. Ah! Shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things I can do without. Come on. 
most immediately recognizable vocalist of the 80s right there. Uh-huh. You can tell immediately. So Shout was released in November 1984 as the second single from the second Tears for Fears album, Songs from the Big Chair. And it hit number one on the U.S. Hot 100 while hitting number four in the band's native U.K., so this is another repeat song because we talked about songs from the big chair a couple of years ago on our Patreon bonus feed. So if you want to know more, you'll have to pay us money. Next song. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you all. So to recap, Tears for Fears are the songwriting duo of Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, who met as friends in Bath, England. They initially played together in the band Graduate, but according to Kurt Smith, the other three members were more interested in playing live, whereas he and Orzabal were more interested in crafting music in the studio, and the two of them were just constantly being outvoted in every band decision. <laughs> so they formed Tears for Fears in 1981 with keyboardist Ian Stanley and drummer Manny Elias, though Elias actually doesn't play on Shout. That's a Lindrum that's responsible for that big fat beat in the background. He actually mimes playing a drum in the music video, just like Charlie Watts in the Harlem Shuffle video, though, though Elias seems a lot more excited to be there. So the name Tears for Fears comes from psychotherapist Arthur Janov's Primal Scream Therapy, which focuses on buried feelings and childhood origins of neuroses. And the influence of Primal Scream is most evident on their debut album, The Hurting, which is a very moody, introverted album. And uh, that's the album that has Mad World on it, which was later covered in the movie Donnie Darko by Gary Jules. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, So Orzabal and Smith intended songs from the big chair as a more like extroverted response to that album. And in fact, from the title, you might assume that Shout is about primal scream therapy. But uh, apparently Orzabal says that it's actually about political protest and the need to resist apathy and stand up and do something. But I'm interested in what you guys have to say about this one. Uh, Libby, what do you think? I think Tears for Fears of the band you get into when you want to be a moody teenager, but you're not ready to fully commit to the goth lifestyle. Oh, that was the cure for me in, in high school, but, I, oh, but I, the, I feel you. Yeah, the cure is like officially goth. Tears for Fears is like right before you get into the cure. Um, I liked these guys a lot more when I was younger. And I think I in my head, sometimes I get them mixed up with a flock of seagulls, which they are could not be more different. Um, I do like a flock of seagulls better, despite being an adult goth, or I guess a retired goth. <laughs> goth emeritus. Yes. <laughs> I'm putting that in my Twitter bio. Uh, I like this song a lot. I think it is lush, gorgeous, while also being sparse and desert-like, and like you said, cavernous. But I, I'm never going to listen to it. Like, it, I'll listen to it if it comes on, but I'm never going to seek it out. Um, which is weird because it really is a gorgeous song. Um, I prefer Everybody Wants to Rule the World. But there is no denying that this song is great. Sometimes you can recognize that a song is great while recognizing that it's not really for you. And I think that's where I live with... Uh, with this one. Yeah, that, that is kind of where I'm at with it. Like, I love Tears for Fears, or at least I love a couple of their albums. Uh, but like, the, the, I've always had kind of more of like a, an intellectual love of this song, whereas like I can listen to Everybody Wants to Rule the World just any old time and just love it every time.
So, so Tears for Fears is a band that I actually had a, a blind spot uh, with until a couple of years ago. And I, I knew this song. I didn't know that it was Tears for Fears because I didn't know what any Tears for Fears songs were except for, for Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Um, I like it a lot. Like Libby said, it's 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 big uh, and sparse sounding. But you know, there's a couple details with it that that really strike me. One, the am I wrong in thinking that the vocals kind of sound like Andy Partridge? <laughs> yeah, I he can, does. Okay. I can hear well, that. And I, 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 I think the part of why I I like this song so much is like it. I could like with some different lyrics. I feel like this could fit on the big, the big express or skylarking songs from the big express. <laughs> it it, it kind of could. But yeah, that that the that big echoey swath of sound just kind of circling and enveloping it. Well, as we discussed in the Big Express episode, that album is like filled with Lindrum in all sorts right. of like crazy like combinations. They they plaster it all over every song in a bunch of weird ways. So I can there's definitely a spiritual connection there. At, at this point, I only have a compilation of theirs. I I feel like I should get songs from the Big Chair. Um, at some point, I, I just haven't gotten around to it. But uh, you know, the, the songs I've heard from that compilation, you know, I, I've liked basically all of them. Um, so yeah, this, I think this, I think this is really good. Again, partially because I don't think I've heard it enough for it to have the chance for me to get sick of it. I feel like if I had heard this for the last twenty five years on a regular basis, it might wear itself out. But right now, I'm still kind of in a honeymoon phase with it over the last couple <laughs> of years. Yeah, I would say in addition to a compilation, like songs from the big chair is really all you need. And honestly, I assume that that compilation already has like four or Probably. five songs from the album, and it only has eight songs on it. So mm, there you go. Buy the album if you really feel like you need it. And they actually released a new album just earlier this year called The Tipping yes. Point. Which is not a Malcolm Gladwell reference. It's much more depressing than that. It, it refers to the blurry threshold between life and death because Roland Orzabal's wife passed away during the production of the album. So tears for fears as intense as ever. Yes. Not stopping. Okay, well, let's get to the final song of this polka medley. This is Papa Don't Preach by somebody named Madonna. I don't I don't know who that is. Flash in the pan. <laughs> Here it is. Please, Papa, don't preach. I'm in trouble deep. Papa, don't preach. I've been losing sleep. But I made up my mind. I'm keeping my baby. Oh, I'm going to keep my baby. I'm going to keep my baby. Keep my baby.
Papa Don't Preach was released in June 1986 as the second single from Madonna's third album, True Blue. It topped the Hot 100 and UK singles and also hit number one in just almost too many countries to count. So Madonna was born Madonna Ciccone, that's right, Madonna's her real name, just like Prince, in Bay City, Michigan, which if you turn your palm into a map of Michigan is right where your thumb meets your forefinger, right there at Lake Huron. She moved to New York in 1977 to become a ballet dancer, but she ended up in the underground disco and club scene, dancing for the Patrick Hernandez Review and playing in the bands The Breakfast Club and Emmy, the latter of which with her ex-boyfriend Stephen Bray. Madonna and Bray started working on some club tracks on the side, and a demo tape made its way to DJ Mark Kamins, who got Madonna signed to Sire Records and produced her first single, Everybody. probably already know the rest of the story. Madonna wasn't just big. Her singles and videos came to define like the whole concept of a pop star from the MTV era onward. True Blue to me is where she really became an institution. And it was also her first like truly self-conscious effort to take on more serious subject matter. Papa Don't Preach is about a pregnant teenage girl seeking advice from her father. And though the bulk of the song was actually written by producer Brian Elliott, Madonna later said she was drawn to the song because, quote, it just fit right in with my own personal zeitgeist of standing up to male authorities, whether it's the Pope or the Catholic Church or my father and his conservative patriarchal ways, end quote. And her father in the video is played by Danny Aiello, I should probably note, by the way, and R.I.P. So this has honestly never been one of my favorite Madonna songs, uh, to tell you the truth. But and even on True Blue, I highly prefer Open Your Heart and Live to Tell, which are just two like effervescent pop singles, just two of the greatest songs anyone has ever recorded. But it's tough to deny that this song opened like an important new chapter in her career. And I know that I just spent a few minutes kind of going on Madonna because um, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with her. I think in a fair world, uh, Cyndi Lauper would have gotten what Madonna got. But um, I do love this song, even though it's super heavy-handed. And I generally don't like my pop songs really heavy-handed. It's like you said, it's hard to deny this song. Um, I just, again, want to acknowledge that she makes the choice to keep her baby. She mm -hmm. isn't forced to. So pro-choice is important. Keeping your baby is also a choice. Madonna is pro-choice in this. Danny Aiello uh, recorded an answer song to this. He did. It's called Papa Wants What's Best For You, and it's terrible. Papa just wants the best for you. He wants to be proud of the things you do. I was not aware of Danny Aiello's recording career. It's truly baffling how bad it is. Like, you shouldn't be baffled because, of course, it's going to be bad. But, like, you're not prepared for how bad it is. And also, like, nobody f***ing asked you, Danny. <laughs> She's not really your pregnant daughter, dude. It's just it's a, it's a role. Like <laughs> It's his method acting. Did you also record songs about, you know, the Godfather? <laughs> <laughs> that moonstruck. Do the right oh. thing. Purple Rose of Cairo. Come on, man. His hit single, Don't Disrespect the Pizza Parlor. <laughs> oh, no, but I do. 
I do really like this song. And you're right. Um, it's not the best song on the album uh, because absolutely open your heart all the way. Kelly Osbourne also covered this. Yeah. And it's the it, it's somehow like Weird Al's version is more respectful than hers. And you mentioned Cindy Lauper and like one thing that like my dad told me about Madonna is that like when Madonna first debuted, like like his first thought was like, oh, look at this Cindy Lauper wannabe. And I've heard some interviews uh. with Cindy Lauper who were like she, she, you know, she holds no grudges against Madonna oh. and said like, you know, just like at the at the time, like that's just what. Well, I mean, journalists still do this, but it was like, you know, you have like two female pop stars and logically you need to pit the two of them against each other until oh, yeah. one wins. Yeah, I don't think they should be pitted against each other, but I just wanted the success that Madonna had for Cindy. Cause I prefer her music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cindy Lauper is fabulous. She's awesome. Yeah. But I, 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 just, I actually only listened to she's so unusual for the first time, like a couple of years ago. And it's like great start to finish. It's so good, but yeah, I don't think they need to be warring against each other. I just wish, I wish the best for Cindy. I wish she'd gotten what Madonna got. Um, Madonna now is also bonkers. Yeah, yeah, she's really sure. gone crazy. You mean Madam X. Ugh. <laughs> so, John, I, I I know for a fact that you have a copy of the Immaculate Collection in I your CD do. collection. I do. So, uh, early in in 2021, uh, Amanda and I did a bonus episode for the Patreon feed about artists that we enjoy, but who we consume primarily through greatest hits collections. And uh, one of the things I was very happy to share with at least a limited portion of the world at that time is that I absolutely love the Immaculate Collection and you can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like pretty much every song on there a lot. And 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 this is one of them that I, I really enjoy. You know, w- with regards to just the general topic, you know, there, there's a there's a quote from Roger Ebert. Uh, that not specific to this song, but to a more general thing that I often think about as he says, it's not what a movie is about. It's how it is about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I listened to a film podcast called switchblade sisters where that's like the, the mission statement of the entire yeah. podcast. And I couldn't yes. agree more. Yeah. Like, like people were very eager uh, to make this a flashpoint in a specific uh, category of social debate. But, but to me like that, that specific, uh, you know, area is not really the driving emotional core of the song. It's it's her claiming the ability to make a choice herself, even if it's a, if it's a bad one, even if it's the wrong one, asserting that, like, I have the right to make this decision for myself yeah. and face whatever the yeah. consequences will be. And f- for the, for that matter, like, you know, the, 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 the keeping my baby thing, you know, it also, you know, I always initially heard it as also like, you know, she's also like keeping it and not giving it up for adoption, which is where the point of of uh, people would say like, oh, well, you got to do the responsible thing. But like, well, what if she doesn't want to? Yes, there mm-hmm. will be there will be difficulties that will come that w- by going that route. But it's her choice to make that to, to, to establish that bond. So like it's, you know, like with a lot of Madonna's material, it's it's very much just a declaration of saying like I'm not going to let uh, the outside world uh, dictate 
everything about how I'm going to live things. I'm going to make some choices and some of them might not be great. Some of them will be um, things that uh, people or rather that other people may not perceive as great, may not be what they would want uh, me to do, but I'm going to make them. Mm-hmm. And I've always really, really respected uh, that general ethos, uh, you know, from Madonna and from her best songs. It's also uh, a rare Madonna story song. Yes, it is. Yeah, um, that it's it's this whole narrative. Um, I think about this song a lot because, like, in my writer head, I I wonder about the character in the song. Like, did they make it work? Like, or was like mm-hmm. I think about that boyfriend. Like, did. Papa not like that boyfriend simply because he didn't like any boyfriend she was going to bring home? Or was he really bad news? Like, I I worry about her (laughs) in this weird way. Like, I do. I catch myself lying awake at night wondering, like, did it work out okay for them? I'm like, they're not real. But I think about it all the time. Does does Danny Aiello continue the story on his song? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Was he a good grandpa? Like... Did they make it? Did they they work it out? And then also, like, what's best for her, Danny? What do you think is best? <laughs> what I say is best. And to loop this back to Weird Al. Well, well first off, I, I mean, he, he parodied her song Like a Virgin as Like a Surgeon. That one's so famous that I almost forgot about it. I finally made it through med school. Somehow I made Madonna shows up in uh, the new movie. Yeah, the, uh, the she's played by Evan Rachel Wood. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood, yeah, as as his lover. Like, uh, yeah, I, I mean that hasn't come out yet at this point, but uh, no. we'll definitely be like reporting back in on that one. Mm-hmm. And also, one of the mainstays of his LTV specials was that he would take like real interview footage and then like edit himself in as the interviewer to comedic effect. And there's a great one with Madonna from his 1985 special. Now, this is something I always wanted to ask you. What exactly do you think of when you think of Al? Non-stop sexual energy. Yeah, that's the usual <laughs> response. Um, say, you remember my song, Like a Surgeon, don't you? Yeah, I remember that record, yeah. Well, tell me, how do you think it's affected your career? I think that's really what's crossed me over. And given me the exposure that I have now. Well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Bless this beautiful man. He's the best. Yeah. And I also love his rendition of Papa Don't Preach because he takes like this like Christian themed song and makes it sound like something that would play at a bar mitzvah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. There it is. And that's about it then for Polka Party Part 2. So Libby, thanks for joining us once again for this weird experiment. Yeah, we should definitely have you back for the one from Running With Scissors, which has all the great like late 90s hits that we all remember so much. Spice Girls, Harvey Danger, uh, Just say it. Just say it. Just say (laughs) why you want me on there. Yeah. So next episode, we're going to do one more polka medley before we break for a different compilation. And this time we're going to be jumping ahead to his 1992 medley, Polka Your Eyes Out, which catalogs like all of the wacky seismic changes in popular music that took place in the late 80s and early 90s. So join us next time to hear our thoughts on Billy Idol, Suzanne Vega, Technotronic, the B-52s, R.E.M., Bell Biv DeVoe and EMF. Oh, boy. <laughs> like that's that's like quite a lineup right there. It's indeed. It's going to be unbelievable. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you call this record with all these songs? This is called 
Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally written by Andy Partridge, whose voice does sound kind of like Roland Orzabal's. You can find Kenneth's music at bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bennell. We'll be back with our next Polka Medley in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. I love you, Dr. Zayas! (laughs) 